Your Grape Encounter will be starting in just a few seconds. But I wanted to let you know that this segment of Grape Encounters is brought to you by my number one wine discovery of 2016. The awesome gold medal winning wines of the Cardello Winery. From the very first sip, you'll understand why these astounding, nicely priced Cardello wines are swiftly becoming a cult classic, just as I predicted. Handcrafted and stunning, you can get yours at CardellaWinery.com. That's CardellaWinery.com. Or find more information at GrapeEncounters.com. This week on Grape Encounters Radio. There was a quote that is attributed to you that I think is awesome. You said you want to make wines that are like LeBron James or Dwayne Johnson. (laughs) Explain that. What makes an exceptional wine? Exceptional. And you can compare it to like athletes, you know, like why is LeBron James LeBron James? Well, it's because, yeah, he's six foot eight. You know, he's a big guy that is elegant, graceful, has great hand-eye coordination, is smart, is smooth, and has great dexterity. And he moves in a way that's like poetry in motion. me a grape, crush me some ice, skin me a peach, save the fuzz for my pillow. And it is time for your weekly grape encounter, and I have such a good story today. You know what? This is just a great feel-good story on today's show. You know, we talk a lot about how many ways wine is used to do good things. There are so many events that are wine-driven that benefit so many great causes. There is one, not event, but wine that is dedicated to a cause that I have been wanting to talk about for a very long time. And finally, we get the opportunity to do it. It is a wine called Purple Heart, and it in part benefits the Purple Heart Foundation. It's made in the Napa Valley. It's a collaborative effort, and we'll get into all of the players that are helping to make this wine. I got the wine yesterday. And I frankly was shocked by this wine, not just because it was delicious, but because the price was ridiculously low for a wine that is this good. So without giving away any more, I want to welcome one of the winemakers, part of the team that is making Purple Heart Wines. It's David Grega up in Napa Valley. Hey, David, how are you? I'm outstanding, man. How are you? Well, I'm really thrilled to be doing this story. I really am. This wine is, I think, proof positive that you can make really outstanding wine and still sell it at a reasonable price. And you're a guy that is making high-end Cabernets up in Napa Valley, and we're going to get into just how expensive some of those are. So I guess you probably are awfully proud of this effort because this is a home run. Yeah, it fires on all cylinders. It really just kind of, it's a win-win for everybody. And it's sort of a perfect storm that happened over the past few years. And it's, it's a privilege to be a part of something like this. Well, let's talk about how you got into winemaking. First of all, you're a vet. And you've got a pretty serious story, I think, to tell about your experiences, you know, during and after serving. Let's just talk about how wine came into play and, and just give us a little bit of your background and your story. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's it's sort of, it's a long story, there's a lot of different variables, but to basically get the idea, um, you know, I, I, I joined the Army right out of uh, high school. I, was, I graduated in 2003, so this is right when the war started. 
And I, you know, I just I saw guys that were my age on, on television, uh, you know, out there fighting, and I just felt like I could do something. You know, I, I was an able-bodied guy, a smart guy. You know, maybe I could help. So that's what I did. I, I asked what the first combat arms job is, which is just a, a job that you know is going to put you on the sort of the front lines. You're going to be, you know, it's a, it's a combat position. And they said, well, the first thing going is to be a tanker. And so I said, okay, let's do it. And I signed up and I went to Fort Knox and did uh, my basic training and my my tank training and ended up stationed in the 3rd Infantry Division in Georgia. And on our 10 months or so, we had to train up to go to Iraq. They kind of told us, hey, we're taking your tanks away and we're going to put you on Humvees and you're going to be kind of more like sort of like infantry, you know, a mechanized infantry. And some of us went to airborne school and we did a lot of infantry training and we deployed, and so I ended up as a 50 cal gunner mostly in Iraq. We did take out tanks every now and then, and you know we got to do you know, a lot of infantry stuff. So you know I, I had my year over there in Baghdad, and um, I want to interrupt for a second because the idea of training with a tank and then having them tell you once everything is done, we're taking your tank away from you and putting you in a Humvee. That doesn't feel very reassuring to me. I, I want my tank back, frankly. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. For the guys that were NCOs, the sergeants, and the guys that have been in for a little bit that were true tankers, which is, you know, the, the sort of the unofficial motto is like death before dismount, like we're staying on our tank, you know, they were true yeah. tankers. They didn't really like it, especially at first. For us, the younger kids, I mean, we had just come through basic training, and when we were in basic training, we were the first class at Fort Knox, the armor school, to really incorporate a lot of infantry focus because of the way that the war was going. And so when you go through basic training and tank school, like it's kind of like um, you know saying somebody who just got a teenager who just got his driver's license is going to be an expert driver. Like it's not, yeah. you know, you've, you've got the minimum standard met to like say that you can drive. So we kind of didn't really feel like tankers per se because we had kind of started out training in a hybrid style, and then as soon as we came to our other unit where we had 10 months training time leading up to deploying, we had our first sergeant, which is the highest-ranking enlisted guy in the uh, company. He was an old airborne instructor, hardcore lifetime infantry guy. So right off the bat, we just had that whole thing. So, so for the younger guys, it actually kind of was fun, and it was kind of like a we were just kind of guys. We were just kind of dudes, you know, yeah. ha- having fun and going out there and, Get to do a lot of different things. We were um, a dismount on a Bradley fighting vehicle for a couple months almost. And, you know, I got to be the dynamic entry specialist on, on raids, which is just a fancy way of saying the guy that carries the battering ram and uh, the, you know, crowbar and the lockpick kit and the kind of breaching specialist. And so I got to do all types of fun things, and I really enjoyed it. And we got to mess around on tanks, too. We're talking to David Grega. He is one of the collaborators on a wine called Purple Heart. It benefits the Purple Heart Foundation, which does some amazing work. And uh, David, also a vet himself, who got interested in winemaking while he was in the service. So So let me ask you, prior to enlisting, did you have any experience with wine, and how did that come into play? I know you were a cigar guy, right? Yeah, my first sergeant was cigar aficionado, and he just he got us all into it. And you know, tanks and cigars kind of go hand in hand, you know, and big guns, and it's just all the, the machismo. And so I got really geeky into it, and I started studying cigars, and I, I started studying the terroir, the soils, how it's harvested, fermented, blended, aged, and all that, and doing tasting notes. 
and I was on a lot of online forums, and basically through the online forums, I got introduced to other forums on the cigar chat rooms that were about wine and spirits and scotch and port, you know. Very interesting because I think that there are very close parallels between making cigars and making wine. A lot of people probably don't think about that, but all of the factors that matter in winemaking matter in making good tobaccos and fine cigars, right? Absolutely. And so that's what happened is that, uh, you know, one of the things I kind of messed up in when I was overseas was my lungs a little bit. I couldn't really smoke, you know, like I used to. And I was getting out I'm from Sacramento, California. So I'm like, you know, I'm getting out. I, I know I don't want to do an office job. I learned my lesson. Life is short. I want to do something I'm passionate about. And, you know, I really like the cigar thing, but I can't smoke cigars anymore. And so I started reading these wine guys talking about wines that they were drinking with their cigars. And I started just buying the wines and trying them and then doing tasting notes. And next thing you know, people thought I was like a 50-year-old guy who had been collecting wine. I just got it. The sensory component of the cigars and then the sensory component of the wine, it just made sense to me. I just had a knack for it. And I was 20 years old, you know, and I didn't really know much about wine. So I started studying. Every day, I'd go back to my dorm and or my room in my barracks, and I'd pick up my Sotheby's wine encyclopedia, and I would go online, and I would just study. So I started studying wine intensely before I could even drink wine, really, legally. Wow. And then I made up my mind. When I get back home, I'm going to focus on wine in some capacity. That's such a great story. And yeah, I do think that winemaking does come very naturally to some people. So, David, tell me about your day job right now. How do you spend most of your time? And uh, what are you making? So I work with Jeff Ames. And Jeff Ames is a famous consulting winemaker here in Napa Valley. And we basically make a number of different uh, high-end Napa cab brands. And we focus, like I said, uh, primarily on single vineyard, you know, high-end cabs. Probably the most recognized brand would be Tor. Yeah. Yeah. And all the other brands, the other brands are a little bit smaller and they're similar though in the type of wine. And the mission is to make the absolute best wines in the world, absolute best wines in Napa Valley, period. I mean, that's our... That's our minimum standard that we hold ourselves to, and if we don't achieve that, we know we got stuff to work on. So, there, there's so much. Um, there's so much that we've got to talk about on that particular subject too, because there are so many Napa cabs, and you can go into some stores and buy a Napa cab for eight dollars, you know, and then you can spend eight hundred dollars on sure. one, and you know, it confuses the consumer a bit, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We'll talk more about that. We are talking to David Grega. He is one of the collaborators on Purple Heart Wines. And this wine is delicious. If you can find a bottle of it, pick it up and enjoy it. And enjoy it knowing that you are helping to contribute to a very, very good cause. Very interesting stuff. We'll be back with David in just a second. Hang with us. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio. In wine... There is truth, and sulfites, and occasionally a a few insect parts. You learn something every day on Grape Encounters Radio. We like to talk about wine. Welcome back to America's number one wine radio show, Grape Encounters with David Wilson. Don't forget to join our Grape Encounters radio Facebook group page, where incredibly fun people just like you share ideas and frequently get together to share a bottle as well. We're back with 
Great Encounters Radio, really pleased to have on a guy who's doing some amazing things, a couple of distinctly different things that I am so intrigued by. It's David Grega. He's been making wine for about 10 years now, makes some very, very high-end wines that I'm imagining I can't afford. <laughs> Welcome, David. How much is the most expensive wine you make? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think... Uh... Somewhere around that three twenty-five, three fifty range. Ouch! <laughs> yeah, I can't afford the wines I make either. So yeah, no but you get to taste them, right? <laughs> uh, yes, I do get to taste. In fact, my job, you know, uh, yesterday and today was to taste through, you know, every every barrel before our racking. So that was kind of cool. We were looking at these barrels that we were racking into a tank, and he's like, you know, these twenty-something uh, barrels is about uh, seven hundred thousand dollars worth of wine. Oh yeah, god! Like, oh my god! <laughs> That's crazy. Crazy. Well, you know, when we were wrapping up the last segment, I was talking about the fact that, you know, you can buy wines that have the Napa name on it, the Napa AVA on it, for, you know, very little money, under $10. It's confusing to the consumer, I think, because not all wines are created equal. And, you know, Napa certainly known for, in my opinion, the best cabs in the world. You just need to know which ones to buy. How do you feel about that? You know, when you see a product that is wearing the Napa name that we know is made with, you know, grapes that were essentially cull grapes, you know, that somebody else didn't want to put into their wine. What's the best advice to the consumer? How much does price, do you think, correlate with the quality of a Napa cab? I think that to a large degree, it, it really does heavily correlate because when you're talking specifically about Napa, because frankly, it's just so expensive to make wine here. Yeah. And even the sort of mediocre vineyard sites around here are expensive relative to the rest of the grapes in California and certainly the rest of the world. So for 10 bucks, I mean, if you're getting fruit that's ten dollars from Napa Valley, I mean it's usually it's too good to be true. You know, there's something yeah, going yeah. on, there's a lot of manipulation. It's just not a product you want to be consuming. And, you know, and, and to be honest, at that price range I would go somewhere else. I'd rather buy Spanish Grenache or something. But the cool thing is that there are some exceptions and working with the Simandavi family is really great because, you know, these guys have owned a lot of land for a long time. They've been established and they have through their other brands, they have connections to, you know, people as far as buying wines and sourcing wines from outside of the program. They have really good lines on that. And then also they've got a lot of vineyard land that they already own, being clear, which is very rare these days. So, you know, like where some of our other high-end cab brands, you know, like the the Tokalon fruit, some of the the most expensive fruit in the world, you know, as far as I know, as far as per ton. It's a really great site. And, you know, there's one guy who owns it and he controls the price. And so people pay that price. But, you know, when you have vineyard sites that you've owned for a while and they're good vineyard sites, you can afford to take some of that fruit and use it in this wine and, you know, source fruit from other people that you have good lines with and good good relationships with to get good quality wine for good price. Well, that explains a lot because this wine is so good. And, you know, when you open up a wine like this that is dedicated to a particular cause, a lot of times those wines, you know, are less than perfect. This wine is, I assume it's a, a Bordeaux blend, completely a Bordeaux blend unless there's something else in it that I'm not aware of. But, you know, it's just a delicious wine, and at 20 bucks, it's a steal. Yeah, I mean, and again, I'll reiterate, you know, what I told them is that, you know, I don't care what category we're in, whatever category we are in, I want to be the best in that category, and they were right on board with that mission. You know, you've got to do your homework on wine. 
wines, you know, especially when you find a winemaker like David, you know, who's making great wines, you know, you can trust in those wines and go after them, pursue them. But do your reading because there's an awful lot of people out there reviewing wines right now, and some of them are quite good. And seek out those great wines from those great sites, I think. And don't be fooled by a label or a name on a bottle because it doesn't always mean that it's good. Right. So just on Purple Heart for a second, this is a great example of a wine that is not expensive. I saw it listed in the low 20s and even less than that. It's a really great value wine. It's got national distribution now, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's all over the place. It's, uh, it's even at the old base that I was stationed at. Oh, no kidding. Well, that's where it, deser- yeah. it deserves to be there. So tell me about the wine. What's in it? It's Merlot-driven, right? Uh, yes, it's, it's Merlot-driven. And again, we're always looking at different variables and seeing, you know, what can we make that's the highest quality for the best price, you know? And, you know, if we were to base it on Cabernet, the price would be higher because Cabernet costs more, you know? And so we have access to really high-quality Merlot. It's Napa Valley. And we have access to really good high-quality Cabernet as well. But in order to, to get that price to around $20 a bottle or so, at that quality, you know, we really felt that that was the best way to go with the blend. And to, to be honest, it also made a blend that fit what we were looking for, which is something that is approachable, that you can open the bottle and drink it. You know, a lot of these Napa cabs, especially that are cab-heavy, you just... You know, they, they need a few years to really right. soften up. And so we wanted a wine that you can drink right away and had that approachability. And the, and the Merlot offered that. And it also offered a chance to sell at a price that was extremely competitive. Well, so Merlot is a grape that I absolutely love. I've been telling people for years now, buy Merlot. Forget about the whole sideways thing. That's a bunch of BS. This is the best time to drink Merlot because so many of the people who were making less than perfect Merlot got out of the Merlot business, you know, thinking that they could make Pinot instead. And the people who stayed with Merlot are making world-class Merlots. And because the grapes aren't as expensive as they used to be, it's a perfect time for consumers. The Merlot couldn't be better than it is right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're going to make a Merlot and bottle it, for the most part, unless you're just a huge company that knows you can sell it anyways, you're bottling it and making it for a reason. You know, and, you know, Merlot that's still there is usually Merlot that's in a good spot for Merlot. And that's why it stayed there after the whole, you know, sideways thing happened. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, so the Purple Heart Wine, the collaboration is Seaman Davi, yourself, and Ray Corson, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and uh, Ray is also a vet. Yeah, he's a Vietnam vet, and, uh, you know, he's a, he's a combat vet as well. And, you know, like I said, there's not a lot of veterans that are making wine in Napa. Napa's a small area, as it is, but there's uh, especially not a lot of combat veterans, you know, and, and both Ray and I, you know, definitely fit that bill. And it's really meaningful to both of us. You know, I know I can speak for Ray uh, uh, on that. You know, it really means a lot. You know, we, we take this very seriously. We take this as an extension of our commitment, our lifelong commitment to our battle buddies. You know, you wow. are on a team. When you're in combat, you're never off that team. For the rest of your life, you're on that team. So this is an extension of that, and that's the way I approach this brand. I'm sure Ray feels the same way. That is so amazing. How many vets or even active duty guys do you have contact with now that you're involved in making this wine? Do you get an opportunity to speak to a lot of these guys and share stories? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always stayed pretty connected. Like I said, I've always taken that, that commitment to team very seriously. Uh, so I've, I've been very involved with uh, the veteran community in general. But yeah, this, this brand, again, has allowed me to you know come into contact with a lot more uh, of these veterans groups and a lot of guys that are veterans that are trying to help veterans and all of that. And, you know, the Purple Heart Foundation and all those guys, they're really great people. 
they get it. They really want to help veterans, and, and that's refreshing. Now, you did not come out of the Army unscathed. I want to talk about your personal experience and, you know, your personal connection to this product in just a second. So stay with me, and uh, we'll be back. We've got David Grega on the line. He, along with Ray Corson and the Seaman Davi folks, are making Purple Heart wine. And, uh, well, it's actually Purple Heart wines. A really, really good red Bordeaux blend out of the Napa Valley. And we'll talk a little bit about where you can get that as well when we return with Grape Encounters. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. Stop, stop in grapes. And make bad wine. Grape Encounters Radio, and very pleased to have on the line David Grega, who enlisted in the Army back in 2003, and while in the Army, became a cigar enthusiast, and eventually that turned into wine enthusiast as well. He now makes a wine with some other heavy hitters in the Napa Valley. It's called Purple Heart Wine, and it is a wine that benefits the Purple Heart Foundation. And David, this is your second year making this wine, right? And how's it going and how much money potentially will go to the Purple Heart Foundation? Yeah, so the way that they have it set up now, obviously when you're starting a brand off, you know you know how it is. It's a lot of money going out and not as much coming in when you're getting a brand off the ground. And, you know, Purple Heart certainly does, is not an exception to that rule. But even so, we've made a commitment to the Purple Heart Foundation, a minimum commitment uh, that we contribute quarterly. I know there's been a couple $10,000 checks already cut in ceremonies. And then basically, in addition to a minimum commitment, we're also offering a certain percentage of sales above and beyond that as the brand grows and becomes bigger. And so I'm not privy to, to all the exact numbers, but I do know that we started off day one, you know, without selling a single bottle, cutting a large check, you know, just to show our commitment. And we've continued to do that as we're launching and growing these brands. So, you know, they're serious about doing this and doing this the right way. Uh, and yeah. I really love that. That's fantastic. It sounds like it's a long-term project. Now, you did not come back from serving unscathed. Talk about, you know, your experience and how this is so personal. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, in 2005 in Baghdad, it was probably the most dangerous year there for the IED threat, the improvised explosive device. That was really when things ramped up to a high level. And, you know, it was pretty tough. And we were patrolling, you know, Airport Road, uh, Route Irish, which is the main MSR going through town. And it was pretty much the most dangerous road in the world at the time. I think Time Magazine came out with an article on the you know, most dangerous road in the world. Yeah. And that was my beat every day, basically. Oh, my God. And, you know, there were people that served in the Iraq war that certainly had it a lot harder than we did, you know, so I'm not trying to pretend like I'm Rambo or something, but you know, it was it was a dangerous time, especially because the IED threat, you know, it's just such a thing, you know, where you have a bomb that could, you know, blow your truck up that, you know, could be, you know, buried under any pile of trash or hidden, and you don't know if a car that's parked on the side of the road is loaded with explosives or not, so it was a intense time to be driving around the city every day, and so that was our biggest threat, were IEDs, and you know, our convoy got hit a number of times by IEDs, and you know, as a gunner, half your body is exposed. So you really feel the impact of those, 
you know, uh, you really feel like you are out there. And back in the day, you know, I'm, I'm kind of from the older days in the war, which is weird to say, but, you know, nowadays the gunners are much more protected. The armor plating goes way up over their head and, you know, goes all the way around and, and, and the armored trucks are much better. And back then it was just kind of like, you know, three sides with a, a, a you know, a little armor plating that I would kind of rest my arms on. And, and then that was that, you know, so you were, you were out there and, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. You know, there, we lost out of our 60 some guys, you know, we lost one of our guys that I was out on patrol with and he was a, a gunner as well. He was in the gunner's turret as well. He, he was killed by a rocket propelled grenade. And we got a number of guys that were severely injured, um, you know, lost, you know, parts of their feet or legs or whatever. And so it was a tough time. And, you know, we certainly got uh, jostled around, but I, I consider myself lucky. I, I did get some injuries and this and that, but I'm fine. You know, I mean, the PTSD thing and, and sort of the, and all that kind of stuff has probably been the, the thing that I've carried with me the most. So, although there's some, you know, the, the body isn't working as well as it used to. I, I, I still consider myself very fortunate. I am, you know, a, a lot of the other guys had it a lot worse. But to be clear, you came back with PTSD, right? And at least you're quoted as saying that becoming a winemaker is how you healed yourself. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the ways, really, getting into something that grounds me, that reconnects me with uh, a sense of community, a sense of place, that gives me something to be creative and to, to, to kind of fall in love with and be focused on. And that kind of stuff also helps. But really, the people in the wine industry that you get exposed to, both on the production side and on the customer consumer side, you know, I'm a people person and just the exposure to these, all these great people, it's just, it's like medicine, you know, the relationships are, are medicine. So wine has certainly been a part of that healing process. Before I let you go today, there was a quote that is attributed to you that I think is awesome. You said you want to make wines that are like LeBron James or Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Explain that. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I'm a big fan of metaphors. So I try to, you know, say things in ways that people can kind of say, oh, okay, interesting. I get it. And, you know, basically, you know, working with these really high end calves, I try to explain to people, go, oh, is it really worth it? I could find a good bottle for 60 bucks. Why am I going to pay this and that? And I try to tell them, like, look, you know, there are, you know, what makes it, what makes a, you know, exceptional wine, you know, exceptional and, and not just amazing or really good. And it's the same thing you can compare it to like athletes, you know, like, why is LeBron James LeBron James? Well, it's because, yeah, he's six foot eight. You know, he's a big guy, which is a lot of big guys in basketball, but he happens to be a big guy that is elegant, graceful, has great hand-eye coordination, is smart, is smooth, and has great dexterity. And he takes this large frame and he moves it in a way that's, that's like poetry in motion and very controlled. And so that's why he's special and unique is that he can move around like a, a smaller guy and has all these talents and skills that maybe a smaller person would have, but he's got this large frame. And those things are few and far between. You know, like The Rock is probably more flexible then most guys out there are more graceful and able to carry this large muscular frame around and that's why there's only one him and so same thing with sites with, with vineyard sites there are only a small amount of vineyard sites that can give you power and flavor and complexity and balance and elegant and can taste well uh, when you open them and throw them in a decanter and can taste well 10-15 years down the road there are very few sites that can do that and we are lucky to be able to work with a number of sites that are like that and make wines that are like that so you get these big wines that have this complexity of flavor, that have a silkiness, they slide around the palate, and they have a weight to them, and they have an incredible length, you know, and they can drink well young, and they can age and drink well aged, and they're very perfumed and aromatic, you know, so they're not one-dimensional, they're very multifaceted, they're very rare in that sense, and so that's kind of what separates the men from the boys when you start getting up to the really high-end, you know, the, the great vineyard sites and that kind of stuff. All right, that is a great metaphor. I wasn't sure where that one was going to go, but yeah, you nailed it. You know, I like to 
just simply say, I love cabs that are the iron fist in the velvet glove. I, the people get that, you know, big but soft. You know, it's like a 6,000-pound teddy bear. Those are the great wines. And I think that's really, you know, what people are more and more buying. They want it big, but they don't want it edgy. They want it smooth, you know? And I mean, you, my, and one of my missions both. is like, look, yes, we're in, we're in California, so there's sunshine here, and we need to embrace that idea, not run away from it. This whole idea of, oh, we need to pick lower lower sugar levels, lower sugars. We need to, no, we don't need to do that. If your site is a cool climate site and it comes off phenolically ripe and with full developed flavors at 11% alcohol, congratulations. That's fantastic, and you should do that. But I am not interested in making a lower alcohol wine out of just for the purpose. You know, and the fact of the matter is I, I'm interested in finding there are uh, a lot of different terroirs here in the small Napa Valley. There are so many different terroirs, and I work with almost every different AVA, but they're few and far between. There are only a certain amount of sites that just have that right combination of soil and climate and everything that makes that site able to grow a wine that can take the sun and ripen Cabernet and make a ripe wine that also has expression, a real sense of place that cannot be confused with other wines, that has complexity of flavor, that has elegance with the power. And I am interested in honing in on those sites, in making those wines, you know, yes, big and powerful because we do have a lot of sunshine here, but not over the top so that you can't tell where this thing is from. I want the terroir to really express itself. And to be honest, the sunshine that we have here in California is part of that terroir. So that ripe flavor should be there, but it doesn't have to be over the top and it doesn't have to be at the expense of elegance, of complexity and grace. It can be both of those things, but you can't do that unless you're working with these great sites. And I've been lucky to work with those type of sites and that's what I want to continue to do. Well, very well said. But anyway, you know, you want to definitely look for this wine. You're really going to enjoy it. I really give this wine two thumbs up. A great value for the money. And David, something that you don't know about me, but my wife and I own a retail wine store and we're bringing this wine in. We discussed this last night and said, you know what? We're going to bring this wine in. This is really good. But I wanted to tell you something. You don't know this, but when this bottle of wine came in for me to taste, my wife, who is the lead judge at the LA International Wine Competition for Packaging, saw the bottle and she went, oh my gosh. She goes, we gave that label a gold medal. My wife, along with her team, gave your wine a gold for the packaging. The packaging, the label is gorgeous on this bottle. So how about they that? They did a really great job, man. They did, and I, I can't take any credit for that. I did tell them, you know, hey, I don't want to be involved if, unless it's presented in a way that is classy. I want it to look like a high-end bottle of wine. I want this to be respectful. And they just knocked it out the park, and I was just like, wow. I mean, I'm usually a, a tough critic, and I didn't have anything to, to critique on that label. Did, did you know it won a gold medal for design? I didn't know that. That's cool. I, I, yeah. I didn't know that. So. And my wife was one who led the pack in getting that gold medal. It was just a, a strange coincidence, but I got a great kick out of that. Well, David, we got to get. We just have run out of time. We got one more segment of Grape Encounters coming up. I appreciate you being on so much. It really was a pleasure talking to you. And, uh, you know, you're doing great work with the great wines and taking that talent into making really approachable wines that people can afford as well. And I just commend you for that. Thanks for what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us on. And, you know, if people are interested in following along on Instagram, we have Purple Heart Wines. And then also myself personally is a Warrior Grega, G-R-E-G-A, uh, on Instagram. You can follow both both those and keep track with uh, myself and the Purple Heart Wine story. And, you know, we'd love to meet new people and stay in touch. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Ah, you're very welcome. All right. Well, nice having you on, David. We wish you the best of luck. And we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. 
Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of California. All righty, oh, back with Grape Encounters Radio. Time for Sippin' with Sarah. We just played the Sippin' with Sarah theme song. Sarah, you have a twinkle in your eye. <laughs> it always makes me Did smile. Did you know that they had written songs like that about you? <laughs> That had my name on it. it your okay. name was definitely in it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, hey, remember about a month ago, Sarah, we did the whole show on what makes a wine good. Remember that? I do remember that. I barely remember it yeah. because we drank a lot of wine while recording oh, yes, the show. That's yeah, true. No, actually, that's not true. But we got into a subject which we didn't get to talk about very much, and it was the subject of varietal correctness. And I did mention the fact that in a time where we don't care about political correctness, why should should we care about varietal correctness? <laughs> correctness of any form. So you mentioned, as I recall, that there are laws. These are unwritten laws, basically, but you are a law-abiding citizen where wine <laughs> is concerned. And so you're careful not to break the laws, right? Well, you know what? I'm squirming a little bit here. You I, are? Okay. I might walk back that term law. I, I know okay, that I right. used it. But on this topic, it's something that I think is actually a pretty cool marker for whether a wine is what it's trying to be or not. So even though I don't like the term varietal correctness, it sounds so virtuous, kind of schoolmarmish. But the concept, I actually... You like it. I like it. Okay. So this is where you and I part company. All right. That doesn't mean that we're not going to do Sip with Sarah anymore. Can we still it just talk? means we can still be friends. Okay. okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're going to continue to do this. But allow me to offer up a metaphor, because you know I don't use metaphors very often. Right. Okay. <laughs> oh. So when you and I were growing up, did your mom cook? A lot. Okay. She was a good cook. Uh, so my mom was a good cook too. But moms, when we grew up, prepared Brussels sprouts how? <laughs> They were bitter. That's all I know. They boiled them whole. That's how they did it. They took the Brussels sprout, the whole Brussels sprout, put it in a saucepan, and then they boiled them. You know, didn't chop them or anything. Most of us grew up with an aversion to Brussels sprouts because cooking them that way is so terrible. But yet that was the benchmark for how you prepared Brussels sprouts. And I'm sure that there were three or four people in the known universe who liked them that way. (laughs) But for the most part, we all hated them. And we generally would stuff them into a napkin, try to get the dog to eat them, (laughs) stuff them into our crew socks or something to get them away from the table and into the toilet. Fair enough? Fair enough. Okay. I would put okra in that category too. I grew up partly in the South. (laughs) Okay. So now today, what are the most beloved vegetables out there? Well, Brussels sprouts is one of them. It's on every menu. It's on every menu. Why? Because some chefs decided to break the Brussels sprout rules and they went outside the lines and they started chopping them up, sauteing them, doing, you know, 
really crazy fun things with them. And we suddenly and they learned, added bacon. Yes, bacon. Well, bacon, you know, uh, I add chopped up macadamia nuts to my Brussels sprouts, Yum. Parmesan cheese Yum. to them. I don't boil them. I saute them in olive oil. You know, it was meant to be delicious. We just screwed it up. So <laughs> what happens tomorrow when a winemaker makes one little adjustment in the way that he or she makes a Cabernet or a Chardonnay or a Merlot or whatever, and suddenly we get something that's so spectacular, we just fall all over ourselves and we go, I never knew it could be that good. Are we going to take that winemaker and dangle him from a tree? <laughs> oh, dear. Huh? It depends on what kind of adjustment you're talking about. Well, I'm talking and about, you know, we just do something different. Who cares what it is? Just do something different. Well, so uh, let me go back to your analogy. Your basic Brussels sprouts, they were chemically bitter. So in their... They were naturally bitter. They were naturally bitter. So in their natural form, they weren't all that appealing unless you did do something about it. If you add add fat, add nuts, suddenly they become something because bitterness underlying a lot of other stuff is really appealing, but not on its own. So what if the winemaker who's making this new amazing Cabernet just added three Brussels sprouts to the barrel? (laughs) And for some reason, this Cabernet blossomed into something it had never been before. This is where I feel we get it wrong. This was at your competition, okay? The Sunset International Wine Competition. Okay. One of the very prestigious judges on the panel that I was on tasted this wine and said, oh my God, that is delicious. And he went on and on about this wine. And then all of a sudden he realized, he looked down to see what we were judging because there were some groupings that were small groupings, right? And he looks down and he goes, oh, well, it doesn't taste like that. And he said it wasn't varietally correct. And then the wine got slammed. But he what, had thought it was moments delicious. Moments before he loved it. He loved it. Mm, you know what? Do, do we want every carrot cake in the world to taste the same? Or, you know, what about that special Aunt Emma's carrot cake that is just different from all the rest because instead of walnuts, she uses macadamia nuts. Or, you know, she does something to her cream cheese icing that makes it cream she cheese on steroids. bourbon on in it. Exactly. <laughs> but do we say, oh, no, it's not carrot cake-ish enough? So I am halfway on the spectrum here. I'm going I'm, I'm I'm to work you over I'm for the next year the on this. And I'm going to, little by little, I'm going to twist it and turn because, it. And, okay, go ahead. Because I think people have spoken about Cabernet Sauvignon. It's the favorite red wine in this country. And people drink more, buy more of it than any other red wine. And I think that's probably because they expect certain profiles, characteristics in a Cabernet Sauvignon. And I think that there's room for winemaking to do some pretty major adjustments, but still keep those characteristics as the foundation okay, of the wine. Okay, now I've got you. I've got you right where I want you, Sarah Schneider. Oh, this is going to be painful. This is going to be painful. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Cabernet Sauvignon when we were discussing wines that are in our safety zone. And we agreed. We agreed. That Cabernet is one where if you expect it to taste a certain way, that chances are it's not going to most of the time. The ones that taste correct are the ones that are 60, 70, 80, $100. The lion's share are not going to taste correct. Yet that's what the human population is drinking. I agree with that. And By the millions yeah. of gallons. Yeah. They're drinking the 
one that's not varietally correct because that's what they can afford. And you know, I don't disagree with you, but the fact that most $12 Cabernets are just generic red wines makes me sad. And, you know, we all drink value wines, but I just still have a feeling that there's a response when you get a wine that actually shows its colors and you say, yes, that's why I like Cabernet Sauvignon. That's pretty exciting. Would you be supportive of legislation which forced winemakers to put a warning label on the back of the (laughs) bottle that said, warning, this wine is not varietally correct? You know, I think the market will bear what the market will bear. All right, Sarah, that's it for today. The show is over for today. The listeners are going to continue to listen to this awesome radio station, but they're going to go refill their glasses with wine because we've got them all relaxed and ready for the next show. Okay. Okay. But in the meantime, you and I are going to go find a really, really, really variety correct Cabernet Sauvignon from your wine cellar. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm up to that. <laughs> all right. Hey, we'll see you next week. Say goodbye to everybody. Okay. Bye for this week. Bye.